you know, we're going to crush this event harder than anybody that you invited. And they're like, yeah, you know, show us what you can do. And it takes time. Among tech enthusiasts and tech YouTubers alike, Rene Ricci is known as one of the best Apple experts in the scene, with over 100,000 subscribers acquired very quickly on a new solo channel. I wondered, how did he gain such a reputation? And how did that journey got him to become an independent YouTuber? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. When you meet someone new, and when you start talking and the conversations of, of jobs and, and work comes around and someone asks you, what's your job? What do you work on? What's your go-to answer? So it, there's two answers for this. One that I tell normal people and one that I tell customs when I'm crossing a border. <laughs> and they're two very different things. So for customs, I always say that I write books and articles about how to use iPhones and iPads, because that to me is like the simplest explanation I could possibly give them. Uh, and for almost everybody else, I just say I'm a technology analyst, a tech analyst. I found it fascinating how every single person I have interviewed so far has a completely different strategy for avoiding using the word YouTuber. I just, I, I love it. <laughs> so I have been recognized at the airport by customs and like they, and, and like they'll ask me anyway, they've said like, what do you do? And I answer and then they go, I know who you are. I was just seeing what you'd say. <laughs> that's okay. That's, that, that might be a new and one. I don't know if that's scary or, or ha I don't know if that's good or bad. It's a population segment that you, you wouldn't expect me watching videos, but there you go. <laughs> yeah. No, they've been super nice. When you're, when you're at an airport and they recognize you, they're like, ah, I know you from YouTube. And then like, you just keep going. Wow. Okay. That, that, that might be, <laughs> that's either simultaneously one of the nicest and one of the scariest interactions you could have. Yes. Because if anyone in customs like stops you to ask a question, you immediately panic. Or if they like, if they're a really big fan of a phone that you didn't like, maybe you're in a lot of. Oh phones. yeah. <laughs> that's a good probability. So let's get to the very start of the story. Where, where were you born? I was born uh, just outside Johannesburg in South Africa. Wow. Okay. I didn't see that one coming. Really? <laughs> yeah. How uh, did, did you grow up there? Did you move in where you were small? What, what happened there? So my father was an IBM engineer and he was doing a lot of the early railroad and airport implementations. And because the political situation in South Africa kept getting worse and worse and the government kept becoming you know, more and more draconian. They decided they had to leave, and IBM said that he could work in either Vancouver, Canada, or Montreal, Canada. And you weren't allowed to leave South Africa. Like there was no emigration in that sense. They would, if they thought you were leaving, they would just keep all your money. They make it as hard as possible for you. So he basically said he was going on a vacation, and then we just never came back. <laughs> the vacation that is still ongoing. Yeah, you went to school then in Canada. Yeah, in Montreal, in the West Island of Montreal, because uh, it was ironic. My parents gave, or poetic, I forget how that language works, but my parents gave me the name Rene because nobody they knew had it. They thought it would be unique and distinct. And then they moved me to Quebec during a time when Rene Levesque was the prime minister and Rene Simard was the most popular local pop singer. They didn't speak French. You know, they spoke English and some Afrikaans, but they didn't speak French. I don't know if they were sure they were going to stay in Montreal or if we would go to Vancouver or to Toronto, where a lot of our relatives went. So um, I ended up going to English school, which just meant that it was bilingual. It was either like pure French school or English and French school. So I did 
English in the mornings and French in the afternoons or vice versa for most of my childhood life. Interesting. Okay, so since your father was already a part of a of an industry, so to speak, did you have like a very early interest in the technological world or did that happen later? I remember going with him to IBM back in the day, and that's when they still used punch cards wow. and they were kept in a vault and they were carried around in these trolleys. Then I, as it progressed, one of my earliest childhood memories is he didn't want to have to drive to IBM anymore to use the mainframe. So he, we went to the computer store and he bought an Apple II Plus. And I just remember all these beige boxes and green CRT displays. And we would play like all the Apple ripoff, well, not by Apple, but the third-party ripoff versions of popular games. Like there was no Donkey Kong. It was Beer Run. I think Wolfenstein was a first-party game, but like a lot of them were just like mashups of Pac-Man and all the other early games. And he would use VisiCalc and all the other Visi software. And then whenever I could, I would sneak on and try to learn basic programming where the low-res pixels were about a centimeter in size and the high-res pixels were probably like five millimeters in size. But I, I learned to to write like I could draw a spaceship enterprise and make it move across the screen and fire a phaser when I was a kid. And I thought that was amazing. Wow. Okay. So you, I'm, I'm surprised that the genesis of a lot of this already that early, like you grew up in a house with an Apple II, like you were there right from the, yes. from the very start of that story. Yeah, it was amazing. Um, and then he left IBM and started a consulting company and they all used DOS. So we got an early Hitachi DOS computer, um, which was much harder to use uh, than the Apple. And I, I tried to learn as much as I could on it, but it was it was very, very different. And then eventually, I forget how, but I, I looked at the Mac and I ended up on the Amiga uh, because back then they were really cooking. They had just such good multimedia chips and support. And I ended up getting a video toaster, which is what they were using you know back then we didn't have non-linear non editors and all these compute like final cut and premiere and uh, davinci resolve they made it so you could edit on a personal computer really early on and they were being used in tv shows like babylon 5 and that just blew my mind so i got an amiga 2000 and a video toaster and that was my first taste at, at video editing wow that was that, that was also very early yeah this fascinations, this interest, these hobbies, were they already like seeping into your school life in the sense that there were some subjects in school that were particularly more interesting to you or your or, or, and your passions? Or even back then, were you already considering, oh, maybe I should go to college and something computer related or something? How, how did that affect your school life? So I was sort of torn between two worlds because my father was a computer engineer, but my mother was, um, she taught history of art and architecture. And I loved comic books as a kid. And I would spend almost every waking hour just drawing uh, almost nonstop. And so I was very, I became really interested in illustration. And that eventually became an interest in graphic design, which I thought kind of melded the computer part and the illustration part. But none of it was really taught in schools back then. Like e even then, they were years behind even the stuff that I had at home. So I ended up going to art school in college. But and trying to take some computer classes, but it was just all not at all like modern. So I ended up quitting, I think, my second year of college, and I got a job doing graphic design in the early days of the web, and then eventually doing web design because all the companies in Montreal, a lot of the big companies were just beginning to go online, and they needed websites, and they needed email accounts, and there weren't a lot of people who could do that, and I'd figured it out. So I ended up working 
for for about a decade in enterprise, which I did not expect. So this was around the time where everyone, all the companies were going online, right? Like that that first bubble. Yeah, I mean before before Gmail, you know, and before Google accounts and all that, when everyone had an uh, internet service provider and they were terrible, and it was just <laughs> right after the peak of CompuServe and AOL and those sorts of things. Uh, and it, it was amazing because you wrote the websites in like Notepad or whatever. I forget what the Mac version of Notepad was at the time, but and I did the art in like early versions of Photoshop and Fractal Design Painter. And it was just it was an amazing time, and nobody used CSS. It was just not a thing yet. Wow. So you crashed out of school and decided to go into graphic design, ended up doing web design because it was like super hot thing yeah. that everyone needed at the moment. And and you said, like, how, how many years did you spend doing uh, like web design? So it sort of morphed um, because I was doing the web design. Um, I ended up writing a lot of the web copy because the traditional marketing people just didn't know how that worked. And then I started, they started liking the web collateral. So I started doing that for the traditional like white papers and brochures and things like that. So eventually I got into product marketing and that's sort of where I ended up. I was director of product marketing for an enterprise data analytics company. And I loved marketing. It's, it's great. It's almost like hacking people, which sounds terrible, <laughs> but it's actually a lot of fun. But enterprise was just like having to deal with SAP and HP and IBM and all those companies, it wasn't as exciting as what I was watching happen around. This was all around the time of the first iPhone Ooh, introduction. Yeah. And when I saw that, uh, you know, and I, I'd been using Palm, like the the uh, trios and the handspring visors and the, uh, it was before, it was kind of at the crux of Windows Mobile, but I had an HP Jornada and then a Palm Trio Pro which was Windows Mobile, and all of that was happening. And that just looked so much more interesting than what I was doing. You mentioned that at this time, you were trying a lot of very non-Apple-related gadgets. Did your personal fascination with Apple continue during this time? Or was there some point during the story where there was like a, like a rebirth of that passion? Apple had their real hard times after Steve Jobs left and before he came back. And I went from an Amiga 2000 at home to an Amiga 4000 at home to a PC laptop that I needed for work, but I got a Performa Mac and they just weren't great. Like there were a lot of things I liked about the Mac. It wasn't a great period for Apple. So for work, I ended up using, it was a ThinkPad I, and it was like Windows, I think Windows 95 was just coming out and we're moving towards Windows 98. So they're, they're really square ones, like the bento box looking ones. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, and I was using those and then I got an Xbox and I ended up building a Windows machine at home because uh, I had to build some machines at work. And I was all in on Microsoft for a while. Like I had that Jornada and that Trio Pro and the Xbox and a series of Dell laptops. And I was just, I bought in. I watched Bill Gates at every CES saying, you know, the power of software and how everything was going to just integrate together and work together. And and bless their bless their little souls, Microsoft was just never able to do this. <laughs> Hot out of the lab. So I've got this unusual device, but it's connected up and running that vision, visual software. So as I walk around, as I see different people or see sites, it'll actually help me out. So as I walk up uh, to you, the device reminds me uh, that you owe me some money. Uh, yeah, we're going to come back to that $20 in a little bit. That's a disputed amount, but we'll come right. back and see on that. But that's very handy. And Nothing worked together at all. Even Word on, on Windows Mobile could not work at all with Word on a PC. Wow. So so how did you went to be in such a, a strong 
fan of the Microsoft side into falling back with Apple. So what happened was I was at work and the contract we had was with Dell. And so every year I would get the latest high-end Dell laptop. Um, and they were pretty good. They weren't built very well. So like we had on-site service and they would crack and other things and the RAM would go bad and they would just come over and fix it. And it was great. Then, and it's a total cliche, but then Vista came around and I got the new laptop and I opened it up and it said that there were no drivers for the display that it came with. <laughs> and it was a laptop. <laughs> and I was just, I didn't know what to do. And then the IT people goes, look, we're tired of like all this stuff happening. You're working in graphics. We're just going to get you a MacBook. And then like none of this is going to happen anymore. And that was around the time, it was before Tiger, I think. I, th I don't know if it was an Intel Mac or not yet. I'm blurring my years, but they got me a 17-inch MacBook Pro and it was like a battleship, like an aircraft carrier. It was like a desktop. And it was a cliche back then that it just worked. And around the same time, Steve Jobs announced the iPhone. An iPod. A phone and an internet communicator. An iPod. A phone. Are you getting it? These are not three separate devices. This is one device. And we are calling it iPhone. Today, today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And I looked at that and I looked at what I was getting on, on Palm OS and on Windows OS, and it was just night and day. And you could tell that the world was changing. And he announced the Apple TV. I think people forget that a lot, but the same show that announced the iPhone announced the Apple TV. And he showed that it's, it would sync to the computer just like an, uh, an iPod had. And I remembered all those years where Bill Gates said, you know, we're integrating all this stuff and it just never happened. And here was Apple doing it in front of my eyes. So the original iPhone wasn't available in Canada. It came to Canada with the iPhone 3G, the second one. And I went to an Apple store and I bought one. And, you know, over time, I just slowly replaced everything I had. Like I got a new home machine eventually and I replaced everything I had with uh, Apple stuff. And I had to use things like, you know, bootcamp and parallels to run Windows software for a while. But eventually I, I didn't have to do that anymore. And then I looked up uh, a, a lot of this dovetails into the me changing careers into a job that required a lot of Apple uh, entanglement. But even on my own, I was I was moving that way. And then that ended up bringing me eventually to iMore. So before heading there, for like many people, the iPhone was your transition product back into that ecosystem. Yeah. Did you ever own an iPod though? <laughs> that was the original transition product for a lot of older people. Uh, you know, I was, I'm still not, and you know, please don't tell all our mutual friends about this. I am not a big music person. <laughs> so I would listen to podcasts and because I had a trio, I would listen to them mostly on the trio, like even on those terrible speakers, because I'm terrible at audio. I just, I, I, have, I have no real capacity for audio. So I would listen to music, but the quality never bothered me. I never had a lot of songs I wanted to listen to. And my dream was just that one day we'd get a machine where I could say, play this song and it would just play that song and I wouldn't have to worry about it, which we eventually got, but back then wasn't a thing. So I think I had an iPod Nano for a while, but I never, I used it like on plane trips and things. I never used it much day to day. Oof. 
Okay, so the, the transition from jobs that also mark your transition from devices, was it the transition? Because you, you, you commented that you started on graphic design and then you went into marketing. But then yes, did something else happen after marketing that signaled that transition? Because I, I, I loved um, the trio and uh, at the time I was looking at websites and there were a lot of them back then. And the ones that I was on most were like Trio Knots and Trio Central. And I don't know if Windows WM experts were around back then. Uh, it was around that time. And I was just, I was on those forums all the time because the internet wasn't as big back then. Like, I mean, there just wasn't Twitter and there wasn't, or at least Twitter wasn't that big and Facebook wasn't that big. And I'd left CompuServe, you know, so the whole internet was out there, but there wasn't all these different things competing for your attention. So a lot of people would just hang out on their favorite forums all day. And that's what I would do with, um, the, the trio forums and eventually the windows mobile forums and then after the iphone was announced uh, that same company back then called smartphone experts created an apple site called phone different and they had forums and i went there and i expected it to be like what i was used to at trio central and wm experts and that was just always new and interesting articles to read and they just weren't there so I started like I was a typical idiot internet jerk. And I was like, why are these articles so old? Why aren't there more articles? <laughs> it turned out the guy who had started the site had left. He'd gotten a job running networks for a, an American college. And Dieter Bone, who's now at The Verge, but back then was running what they called communities, which was essentially the websites for smartphone experts. He, he had to pick up the slack and he was busy doing the Trio site and busy doing the Windows site and just didn't have time. To do it. So after I complained a few times, he emailed me and he said, well, if you keep complaining, why don't you just write some articles? And I said, okay, fine, I will. <laughs> and so he let me start to write for him and I wrote more and more. And then he turned me into an editor so I could publish without bugging him to read over the articles first. And then I kept saying, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we doing that? And he's like, well, if you want to do all that stuff, why don't you just run the site? And I said, fine, I will. <laughs> oh my God. So I, I forget the year. I think it was like April, 2008 or 2009. I took over uh, what was then Phone Different and eventually changed its name to iMore. And I uh, quit, I think in 2011, I quit my marketing job. It paid great. I liked it, but it just was nowhere nearly as interesting or rewarding as writing about mobile technology. And I went in full time um, at iMore. I, I just find it weird and fascinating that you went from being that annoying guy in comments that every YouTuber knows and hates to actually like owning the platform <laughs> that was actually pushing the content. That is fascinating. So there's two differences though. Like one is even from CompuServe, I decided early on in the internet, I'd always use my own full real name on anything. So ah. I would never post anything that I was too embarrassed to have my real name on. And I was complaining, but I was never a jerk about it. I was, I was always complaining from the side of, I want more. Like, please give me more. It wasn't like you suck or you're terrible or why do you look like that? You know, I, <laughs> I was never... A terrible commenter. I, I just, I loved, and they knew me from the trio site. They knew that I loved this stuff and I was hyper engaged. So I, I think they decided they wanted to turn my engagement from complaining into proactively doing something about it. Okay. So, so how did running iMore went? It was good. At first, you know, there was, there was a staff, but a lot of them had full-time jobs. And so they couldn't do that much. So I ended up, and I think the same thing was true of the people who, because, uh, so Dieter Bone left and went to The Verge and Kevin Mitchell took over. And he had started CrackBerry back in the day when BlackBerry, because back then BlackBerry still ruled the world. Oh, yeah, I remember those days. Uh, and so that was the biggest site we had on the network, just super popular. And he wanted a full-time person running every site. So we got Phil Nickinson on Android Central and Daniel Rubino on Windows Central. 
and eventually Derek Kessler on Precentral, which became WebOS Nation, and Kevin was still doing Crackberry. But we had to write a lot of the stuff ourselves. So it wasn't uncommon that we would do like 10 or sometimes even 20 articles a day Wow, on our own. Um, and we, we'd have help with features and reviews. But I learned that I had to start hiring. I ended up hiring uh, you know, some really, really good people, Leanna Lofty and Ali Kazmuha, uh, both of whom were poached by Apple because they were so awesome. And you know, a few other people over the years, Peter Cohen, and I mean, the list went on and on. And then eventually I was smart enough to hire Serenity Caldwell when Macworld started downsizing. Um, and together we hired Lori Gill, who runs I Am More Now. And we, we started to slowly manage to build out a team and also build out a content strategy that wasn't entirely news focused, but we did a lot of like buyer's guides and a ton of help and how-to articles back before I think almost every site was doing that kind of stuff. And that really helped it sort of grow and, and solidify itself uh, in the community. Being able to say that you hire people that were then poached by Apple actually sounds like, like a batch of honor. <laughs> sounds like a batch of... Well, three of them, they took Liana, Ali, and Serenity. So Yeah, that means that at least that you had a, a, good, a good eye for, for who to hire. <laughs> Talent acquisition. Yeah, absolutely. During those days, like, because this was, uh, if we can call it that way, some of the earlier days of tech journalism, far f removed from <laughs> how, how the profession is a little bit more, more, more cemented as it is in, in our current year. How did the relationship with Apple actually evolved during the time. I, I ask because nowadays it's a little bit of a given that if you are either an influencer or working a website that has enough pool in a certain like tech space, then you get invited to conferences, you get like press passes, you get to like the reveals of products and such. But I don't think that was always the case. When did you start getting like press passes and having more of a mainstream recognition of iMore inside the specific Apple community and from Apple themselves? So I think with Apple, it's still not common, which is why you'll see things like Lou from Unbox Therapy, uh, you know, or Daniel from Zone of Tech complain that they have millions of subscribers. And, you know, and, and it's, it's still very difficult to have a relationship with Apple because I, I think there's a variety of reasons. One is that Apple was sort of late to YouTube in particular, but also that, and we can get into this deeper, that Apple is trying to go beyond technology, you know, coverage. Mm -hmm. Uh, but back then, I did not have a relationship with Apple at all and, and did not for years. It took me, I don't even know how long, five to seven years of concerted effort. Like, I think a lot of people get surprised, even shocked by Apple, because usually it's what you say. Like, I got invited to Samsung events and Sony events long before, years before I got invited to Apple events, which might seem counterintuitive. But those companies were like, oh, it's a big publication or, oh, you know, they have this many subscribers, we just invite them. And Apple was never like that. Like I, I, I had no communication with them. I would ask to go to events and I would always be very politely, very nicely told that there was no space available. And I just persisted. Like I would talk to them every time. I'd go anyway. I'd buy a ticket for WWDC when I could. Like I remember Matthew Panzerino, who now runs TechCrunch, but he was at the next web back then. And I both bought tickets for WWDC and we sat in the back and we saw Apple PR and said, hey, you know, we're going to crush this event harder than anybody that you invited. And they're like, yeah, you know, show us what you can do. And it takes time. And it's very much like that. And I just I got to know more and more people and I got to show more and more of my work. And then it was very systematic. Like I got invited to WWDC, which had the biggest capacity. 
And then I didn't get invited to the iPhone event. And then the next year I got invited to WWC and the iPhone event, but not the Mac event. And the next year, I think I got WWC and the iPhone event and the Mac event, just because the Mac events back then were on campus in a tiny, tiny 100 seat theater. So they had very, very limited capacity. And it really was like concerted effort over time. And I think because a lot of people are used to what you said, like Samsung will invite, you know, they'll invite a ton of people that they expect Apple to be that way. And when Apple's not that way, they get super angry. <laughs> but Apple's just never been that way. It's always been like, uh, and, but, and it goes both ways. Like Ryan Block left Engadget and he still got invited. And Jason Snell left Macworld and he still got invited. And I've left iMore. And it's hard to tell because the whole world has changed. But I think I'd still be invited. It's a very, very different company. And I think that throws a lot of people and I don't want to say that they expect to be invited, but they just don't understand that it works so differently and that causes a lot of frustration. Yeah, well, the Apple ecosystem, and when I mean the, the ecosystem of people who, who talked about it and create content about it, seems to be its own monster in, 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 every, in every platform that you check. Which brings me to the topic of YouTube. Like everything that we have talked so far is like far into a past of the internet that precedes even the creation of YouTube, let, let alone it becoming mainstream. So you were out there already creating quote-unquote content before even YouTube was a thing. When did YouTube become a thing? Where were you and how did that change the, the sort of work that you were doing? So uh, early on, I remember um, the owner of our company, Marcus Adolfson, covering CES in real media because there was no YouTube back then. And it was horrible. <laughs> we started doing this thing called the Smartphone Round Robin. It was Dieter's idea. And every year, everyone who ran the site would switch phones with everyone else. So like I would get the Android phone for a week, then the BlackBerry phone for a week, then the Trio phone for a week. And I think the Nokia phone, we did that one year as well. And we would all spend a week writing about it. And then we do a video for it. And, and YouTube, this was probably 2008, 2009, 2010. So YouTube was just becoming a thing. Like it wasn't, there was no AdSense or anything like that yet. So it was mostly just the distribution method for videos. But I had to do some videos for that. Um, and also we, when the iPad came out, I think we did some video reviews for that is when we first started doing reviews. But it's nothing we focused on. It was just an easy way for us to store the, and display the video that we wanted to put with our products because we thought video was better than just doing photographs. So then that would just slowly grow. And every year I would do a review for the iPhone, the iPad, and the, the whatever Macs I got. And so I would do like five, six videos a year. But we never, we never looked at it as its own thing or its own strategy. Again, it was, it was just an easy way to get video up onto the websites because that's what was paying the bills. When did, did, did the idea of Vector became a concept that you started thinking about? So I'm highly motivated by spite. And if someone <laughs> tells me I can't do something, I really want to do it. So at some point, uh, my boss at the time, Kevin Mitchellick from Crackberry, he hired Michael Fisher, uh, Mr. Mobile, to sort of be our in-house YouTuber and to see if we could build like a YouTube first entity instead of being a web first entity. It's like the way that iMore was based on the web, if we could build Mr. Mobile to be based on YouTube. And then Phil Nickinson left Android Central when Daniel Bader took over and Kevin decided to make um, that into like the, the, the modern dad concept and see if we could have like a, a channel that was way more into home automation and things. And he started his own channel too, KM, and he did like Tesla reviews and he wanted to try and see what they could do then because nobody was certain about the business model. If you ask a lot of web companies, even today, they'll say the, there's not a lot of money in YouTube for them. It's much more lucrative 
to make a video, put it in their own custom player and show their in-house ads on it and use it to sell other products. That's how they, that's how like Future would make money. And, you know, probably Vox, maybe a couple other places. Uh, maybe Vox has changed now, but I think, you know, a lot of the networks do it that way. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I was reviewing products and Kevin's like, you're not really good at video. Maybe don't do so much of it or just focus on B-roll and do voiceover. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not good at video? <laughs> Screw you, I'm going to do video. <laughs> and so I just started doing it. I started doing Vector. Um, and I was fortunate enough that I was fairly irreplaceable at iMore then, you know, because uh, Serenity was leaving for Apple and Laurie had just come on um, and I could just do it. So I started doing Vector and I was horrible, like legit horrible at first, but I, I really wanted to get good at it because it seemed like it was just a really good way to connect with an audience, you know, beyond writing, beyond even podcasting, which I'd been doing since 2008. Like I just done the iMore show and a bunch of my other shows. Uh, like at one point I had like five shows, I think it was too much, but video seemed like the next thing. So I, I launched Vector with the HomePod when that came out and I managed to get a review unit for that. And then I just, I wasn't sure what I was going to do because I was focusing mostly on Apple and I had no idea how YouTube worked. So I kind of just started doing on Apple what I'd been doing on iMore, like the editorial part of it. And it, it seemed to go okay. Like it took a while, but it seemed to go okay. At what point did you feel that you were actually getting good at it? Because like I can pinpoint the exact video that I did that was the first video that I didn't hate. Since you say that you weren't good at it, but you were like giving it your all and improving a little bit every time, do you have like a, a like a point that you can go back and be like, okay, this is when it stops sucking? So not really, because I always think the video is okay when I edit it and put it up. But then when I go back like a month later, I think it's terrible. I did a video on the history of the iPhone and like I used a lot of them. I managed a, a few years ago to interview a lot of the early on in podcast form a lot of the early um, iPhone decision makers. And so I got a lot of material on the history of the iPhone and I put a video together basically explaining how the iPhone came to be. And that's where I felt like I found my voice. It wasn't that the video was great, but I sort of found that felt like a real, like the first really solid project I did that was different than what a lot of other people were doing on YouTube. So at this point, you were already submitting things to YouTube. How was the reaction and the growth of the audience and people? So uh, it w- it took me about a year and four months to get to 100,000 subscribers. And I had an advantage in that, you know, I had iMore um, behind me. But, you know, as you probably know, external to internal conversion isn't great on YouTube. And I think that you know, external recommend, even if I embedded every video on iMore, external sources would account for three to 5% of the views and iMore would account for like 10% of that. But I did have a lot of name recognition, you know, and I had a a pretty large Twitter following and I was on MacBreak Weekly, which was a popular podcast. So I I think I, I had a huge advantage in terms of just name recognition. And also because I was trained to write 10 to 20 blog posts a day. So I learned to very, very quickly assimilate my thoughts and turn them into like, in this case, a script and in that case, a blog post. And there was good and bad. Like I was way too formal. I'm working really hard to get less formal at YouTube because it shouldn't sound like a blog post out loud, but it it did allow me to produce a large amount of content. So I could do like three to three to five videos a week 
And I also knew Apple inside and out by then. I'd just been covering it for so long that I knew where the skeletons were buried, but I also knew why they did a lot of the things that they did. And instead of just being angry about something, I could explain why that happened. And I think people started to find some interest in that. Can I ask about your transition to an independent creator? Sure. And what's the story behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So people thought sometimes that Vector was my own thing, but it wasn't. And after a while, I've been working on iMore for 10 years, and it was bought by Future, which is this huge company. I mean, you know it because you've done stuff for Tom's Guide yep. and Tom's Hardware and Laptop. But I think people don't understand that they also own like a Nantech and Tech Radar and Games Radar. And I think they have like 100 different websites. And they're a brilliant company. Like the CEO is brilliant. She's a Scottish lady. She's got a finance background, which is never my favorite for a CEO, because I think the CEO should always be fighting finance, but she really makes it work. And she doesn't want to be number one in Google. She wants to be number one, two, three, four, and five. So she keeps buying more websites so that, you know, if you don't like the Tom's Guide version of this article, maybe you'll like the iMore version of the article. If I may add uh, uh, a story there, when I visited the, the Tom's Guide and the Tom Hardware offices in New York, I was surprised when in the same floor, they were like, okay, so those over there, that's GameSpy. Those over there, those are PC yep. Gaber. And I'm like, what, what? what? It, it was yep. it was eye-opening. And that's exactly, when I would go there, it's the same thing. I would like go say hi to like my friends from Tom's Guide and then go say hi to the people. And you know, it's just, it's exactly like that. It's a hugely competitive industry and they're a public corporation and they wanted to maximize profits. And the way that we'd done that was to go all in on like buyer's content, like which which Nintendo Switch should you Switch should you buy, which MacBook should you buy, and that wasn't the kind of content I was making. And I had a very frank discussion with their video team, and they said exactly what I said before that you know they're fine with what I'm doing, you know, and maybe it'll become something. But the most you know candidly, the most valuable thing I could do for them was to sit there and make ten scripts with ten voiceovers about why you should buy a Nintendo Switch and have those embedded in custom players that ran automatically on every website with house ads on them, you know, because then they would, they would make all the money from the ads, not have to share with YouTube and people would buy more Nintendo switches and they get affiliate revenue from that. And it just, it looked like I was not providing a huge amount of value for them. And at the same time, I didn't get to own my own work, you know, no matter what I did, even though, you know, they put very, very few controls on me. They asked for me to do a few things, not very many at all, but it still wasn't mine. And I got into the point in my career where I really wanted to do something that was mine, especially because I got to watch all my friends at Standard, you know, all the time doing all these sorts of like amazing things. And so I decided, you know, that and this was before the pandemic. So in early March, I decided to put in my notice and I gave them a month's notice because just in case there was an Apple event, I didn't want to leave them shorthanded. But then while I was on that last month, Everything went into lockdown, and I was like, "Ah, oh, what have I just done?" <laughs> well, the, the 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 timing was historic. Yeah, you decided to take control of your own destiny. You decided to take control of your own brand in YouTube, and this is a still an ongoing story. But how has it been so far? It's been really exciting and really terrifying, you know. And it's been both of those things because, like, you know, candidly, I don't have to go to meetings anymore, and I can't tell you how great it is. Not to wake up and say, I got to get a video done, but I've got this meeting at 10, this meeting at 11, this meeting at 12. I, I don't really need to be in all those meetings, but they, it's a company, so they want to have all these meetings. And it, I, I can just get up you know, and do my videos. But at the same time, it was really unclear what was going to happen with 
uh, you know, any kind of advertising or sponsorships because a lot of companies tend to cancel marketing and advertising spend immediately when anything goes wrong. I, I personally think that's wrong. I think that you want to spend your way through downtimes. And that's how a lot of the biggest companies that exist now, they've, they've come out of previous recessions and downturns and bubble burstings, but no company sees that up front. It's very hard for them. So I was worried that there would be just no market for Google ads, no sponsors willing to sponsor anything. You know, we have a lot of brilliant people at Standard, you know, Dave. And, and you know, he's he's always been a huge help to me. He's the one who told me to get on YouTube to begin with. He's been a friend for a long time before, before I even got on YouTube. We did podcasts together way back in the day. And, you know, he was very calm. And he said, you know, you can do this. You've got this. You know what you're doing. Just make great content. And it's you know, it doesn't always happen that way. Sometimes you make really good stuff and people don't come because there's some lack of connection or lack of focus, or you're doing something counter to what YouTube wants you to do and all those. But again, we have really, really, um, I benefit from the amount of stupendously smart people, yourself included, that I get to work with every day. And I managed to put together something that clicked. And so far it's been growing. And I, I just hit 100,000 subscribers on this new channel yesterday, I think. And that's like, almost four months in yeah which i I never thought would happen <laughs> you deserve to, to give yourself some credit too because people underestimate the power of 100k subscribe of highly engaged subscribers people really underestimate yeah. that that there's power in that and it's a show that oof that the, the the brand recognition is there and that people recognize and respect you as an expert and they want to listen to what you have to say about this topic, especially when the very exciting times that we're currently living in the tech industry, and especially for Apple. What is the future for you as a creator that you that you see right now? What's the future for Rene Ricci? When I first started this, I had like a game plan. And I was like, I want to get YouTube restarted. And then I want to get podcasting restarted. And then I looked at all the things that like Thomas Frank does. And I don't, I don't think he's human or there's more than one of him. I am not, I am not sure which of those or Ali Abdal. I'm certain there's a small legion of Ali Abdals out there just with how much, you know, while being a doctor, he does more videos than I do. It's very suspicious to me. It's like, it's like Palpatine. It's all clones. Yes, I think so. Or, or like one of those, one of the X-Men, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. So I had this plan and, you know, no plan survives encounter with the real world. I decided to slow things down a lot. So like I've just got the YouTube channel to a point where I think I know, you know, not really what I'm doing, but I have a plan for how to do it. And I'm going to be starting a podcast with a really good friend of mine, Georgia Dow, who I've done podcasts with before and I worked with on iMore before. And that's sort of the second thing. I don't know exactly where I want to end up, but I know that I want to keep doing more interesting things and more challenging things. And I spent the last year just working on better production values, better cameras and lighting. And now I'm working on better editing. And I always try to pick something that I can improve about what I'm doing and then set a goalpost for doing the next thing. And so right now in front of me is like just getting the the YouTube stuff nailed down. I was talking about this, you know, the other day, like, how do I do proper jump cuts and mm -hmm. uh, punch-ins and punches out because people were complaining about them on videos with a, with very few of them, but not on videos with a lot of them. I didn't understand the rules. So I kept asking like everywhere, what are the rules for this? And I got very quickly pushed towards Edgar Wright videos to learn how to, like the language of, of Ed and Patrick Willems, you know, just to learn the language of all this editing stuff, Nando versus the movies too. Like, how does this all work? So that I want to get better at. And then I want to launch more projects as the other ones become more sustainable. 
Right. I always cite you as an example of how to be successful in an internet content creation career by being like a superb specialist in an area that people just like believe your word when it comes to like a very specific ecosystem. For people who see your content and find inspiration and think to themselves, hey, maybe I would like to open a channel about this very specific thing that I also like and find my own voice and my audience, what will be the advice that you will give them? So I'm a huge believer in basics. And it's the same thing that, you know, I used to talk about in terms of blogging. And that is, you know, research, 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 know what you want to talk about. Like there are some channels that doesn't apply to, like if you're doing a reaction channel, you do it. But if you, for the stuff like I do, it takes me an immense amount of research to understand what I want to talk about. And I'm lucky that I've been doing this particular topic for a while. So I've done a lot of that research already, but there's always new things that I have to check up on and then really, really respect your audience's time. And in the old days, that was like, delete your first paragraph because all you, you know, you humans have a tendency to recapitulate the past before getting to the present and the future. And no one needs to read that. But now it's like, if I can cut anything from a video that doesn't pertain to that video, I'll do it. You know, I want to make sure that I include just the interesting parts uh, so that it's as good an experience for everyone as possible. So it's, it's those two things. It's like accumulating all the material, like slathering all the clay that you're going to use to make the video and then really chiseling it down until you get the, the absolute form you want out of it. That's great. Thank you very much for participating on this. You have an amazing story and I'm glad we managed to capture it. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs>